Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. The link is in the show notes below. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, guides, small city source books, adventures, all kinds of fun stuff that can help you run your D&D game. But most importantly, the patrons help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you very much. In fact, we're going to be looking at a new product that just went out to patrons, uh, I think, Friday, called the City of Arches, which I'm really excited about. So yeah, lots of neat things to talk about today. And let's take a look at what we've got. So first up, I'm, we're jumping right into a Kickstarter spotlight. So my friends over at Nord Games, Nord helped me out with the Kickstarter for the Lazy DMs Companion. They've run a number of different Kickstarters. And they are running a Kickstarter right now for a product called the Elements of Inspiration. I've been talking to Chris at Nord about this product for a while. It is a, a whole set of 420 tarot-sized cards to help inspire ideas for all kinds of different things, different environments. I think NPCs covers all the different things, exploration, role-play, and combat for nine different environments. So really neat stuff. You can kind of see the little prompts that they have here, really cool graphic design on the cards. You can, it's got like little like moon phase and kind of other sort of moon phase rune word weather. So all sorts of different things that you can find on, on, one, on one card. Uh, really cool, really cool idea. I, I love this concept, obviously, because it is something that I really put a lot of energy into with the Lazy DMs Companion. I think that randomness, there is, there is little more powerful in the world of creativity than a creative open mind and some source of randomness, which is really what D&D is when you think about it, right? Like D&D wouldn't work the same way if it, was, if it didn't have any die rolls, right? But when you add... When you add a die roll, when you add randomness to it, that's when really interesting things happen, right? There are like a lot of things that no one at the table. So it's one thing when you have like six creative brains around a table that are all riffing off one another, right? Which is kind of how D&D works if you didn't have a die. And then you add the die in and the die is adding this element of chaos to things that are going on too. So it's really pretty neat. So, and, and, and I think that that's, that that's powerful. To get, to get really nerdy for a minute, one of the things I don't know that a lot of people know, and when we talk, you know, there's all the talk about artificial intelligence these days, right? And there's artificial intelligence in all kinds of different things that we've got. Our phones have it, and how we are offered up things, recommendations have it, and the destabilization of democracies are based on AI. So there's lots of different things that are built around artificial intelligence. One of the key components that makes artificial intelligence work, when it does work, sometimes it catastrophically fails. But one of the things that, that is in it is randomness, right? That it turns out that if you try to model the world too closely, you end up with a thing called overfitting, which means that you've fit your data really well for the past. That doesn't mean it fits very well for the future. One of the ways to sort of overcome overfitting is to add some elements of randomness. So many of the baseline artificial intelligence algorithms that are used for all kinds of different things, machine learning, right? All the different kinds of machine learning stuff is built on randomness. Or it's not built on, but randomness is a factor. Randomness creates this sort of, this, this robustness that says we, we know the way the future was, but we also recognize that the, we recognize the way the past was. We recognize that the future is uncertain. So they throw randomness in there to make sure that that uncertainty is sort of wired in, right? Sorry for the nerddom, but, but the same is true when we're thinking about the creativity of our D&D games, right? That 
it would be boring if we didn't have some element that kind of shoved our brains into areas that we didn't that we didn't have. And so so a product like this, which I, I backed it, right? They they're not sending me a free copy. I, I I'm paying my own money. And it's really a powerful way to take a creative brain and shake it in lots of different directions. So an interesting thing is that they didn't just target this for role-playing. It obviously fits to role-playing. In fact, it obviously fits around the model that we've seen for 5e with the exploration, role-playing, combat, and certain fantasy environments. But it's also like, hey, if you're a writer, this is a good way to just shake up your thing. If you're like creating worlds, this is a way to shake up shake up your brain so it's a really it's a really powerful idea one other thing that i didn't realize about this until until late after i had planned on talking about this is that josh perry jvc perry josh perry of jvc perry is the one who wrote all of this stuff or wrote a lot of it i don't know if he wrote all of it but he wrote a lot of it and i have another jvc perry product uh called cult of the hydra that is sitting on my desk that i'll probably be previewing in times to come so uh tremendous creator very very prolific really really creative i've done work I've done work for JVC Perry on previous products, uh, so really exciting stuff. Anyway, I backed it. You can you can buy the what is a 420 card box. It's going to come in a big box with all the 420 cards in it. Nine different decks for each of the different environments, and I think it's like 50 bucks, uh, 60 bucks. Is that right? Yeah, 60 bucks for the PDF and physical physical book, which is a reasonable price for, for all the things that you get. So cool stuff, really great. I am, I am happy to support it and happy that they are, that they're successful, right? Pledge 20,000 gold, they're at 150,000. So they're doing, they're doing really well, really, really dig it. Upcoming cult contact, there is a cult generator in the Lazy DMs Companion. So yeah, good stuff, exciting. And you can find a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes below. Great stuff. So now we're going to talk about a product that was a Kickstarter and is now an actual full-fledged product. And this is Dragonflight by 2C Gaming. I have previewed 2C Gaming products before. I've done spotlights of 2C Gaming products before on this show. I am a, I am a fan of their work. And they have, they have a particular angle, a particular style for 5e play that is in this book and is in previous books, which is high power, high level stuff going on. The interesting thing about Dragonflight, and it's sort of a coincidence that it occurred this way, is that it came out the same rough time as Fizban's Treasury of Dragons, which means we have two different dragon books for 5e. The good news is there's not a lot of overlap between these two books. Both books have, they both focus on dragons, but they both have a very different take and very different very different focuses for, for how they're covering this topic. So... It's, it's all good news for us. It's particularly good news if you want a lot of stuff about dragons. If you want a lot of stuff about dragons, there's no reason not to buy both, right? If if, if you're kind of like, and if you're not into dragons, and there's some people like that, ah, they're big lizards. Like, I don't really get, well, okay, then you don't need either. If you're like, well, what should I, what sh I, I only have enough to buy one or the other, which one should I buy? Then it's a matter of what they have and that, that is different from one another. The number one difference that Dragonflight has from, from, from Fizzbands, and the reality is they are different in just about every way. There's, there's almost no overlap. But one major thing that Fizzbands has, I'm sorry, one major thing that, that Dragonflight has that Fizzbands does not is the ability to play dragons and not like a dragonborn, not like a stripped down dragon but a real dragon that like if you want to run a if you want to run and, and and play as a real dragon this is the book to do it uh, a big piece uh, here's the table of contents for the whole uh for the whole for the whole book 
a whole preface early on, how you use this book, how it fits in with their other stuff, the epic, epic legacy comp compatibility, stuff like that. Defining dragons, lots of interesting lore about dragons. This is probably an area of overlap, but the lore is different than, you know, you have different takes on the lore, right? Obviously, you don't have that, like, I forget what they call it, the great, the big, the big poem about the first world, like the, the first world idea that was in Fizzbands is not in this. The dragon designer, what does it mean to make a dragon? And this is where you are talking about making dra dragon characters, even to the point where you have things like legendary actions. You're really playing a dragon. This is not like some kind of like it's a regular character. It's just got dragon flavoring. It's like, no, you're really playing the mechanics of, of a dragon and you're going to build a campaign around a dragon, right? Really fun stuff. How to run, what, what kind of campaign do you build when your character is a dragon, right? What, what does that look like? Whole section of there. Hordes, territories, and lairs. Lots of interesting stuff about building out, building out uh, lores. Dragon society and culture, more. That's kind of the, the, the background of it. And then we get into the epic dragons, which I'm going to talk a little bit about as well. One thing that this doesn't have, again, that fizz, so fizzbands, what does fizzbands have that this book does not? Probably the big one is lots of dragon ancil, you know, dragon adjacent monsters, right? There's a the, the fizzbands has a pretty good bestiary of dragon stuff. The other thing that that fizzbands has are maps and mapped out layers to lots of different dragons. So that that's probably a big difference. And again, like these to me, these two books fit very well side by side. Like if you want a lot of dragon books, you know, if you want a lot on the topic of dragons, these the two books I think fit fit really well. So uh, really good stuff. And, you know, gorgeous book, really well designed, lots of good stuff, talks about session zeros. And and one thing, so Ryan, Ryan Service, who uh, is uh, a lead designer over at 2C Gaming, was the lead designer of this product as well. And there's a lot of Ryan. So Ryan Service is a friend of mine. We, we, I've had him on, on my uh, DM Deep Dive before. We talk all the time on, on Discord. And I actually talked to him a lot about this book when I was getting ready to do my preview of it to make sure that I was getting like a full understanding of what the intent was of this. So very good. Is Ryan here in chat? I don't know if Ryan is around. It's pretty early. So yeah. So and then and boy, one thing that Ryan definitely has like his head focused around is high level play. So we're going to talk about high level play, particularly I want to compare and contrast. <laughs> I'm already laughing about it. The great worms between Fizzbands and this book. Very, very different take on, on these things. So yeah, good, good team of designers, lots of information about, you know, really, I always like a book that's like, hey, here's how to use it, right? You, you bought this book, here's how to use it. 191 pages, by the way, if you're, if you're interested in how big this book is. 191 pages and the cost is, you can buy it directly off their site, 25 bucks for the PDF. They do not yet have a print version. So that right now it is just the PDF version. I will, I will link to this in the Twitch chat. And you can find, of course, the link to this product in the show notes below. 25 bucks, you're definitely getting a good, you're definitely getting a good deal for this because it's a, it's a well-designed, well-play-tested book of all kinds of draconic stuff. Beautiful, look at the art, right? Gorgeous artwork, really, really good stuff. This is one thing about like third-party products that I've seen over the past five or six years is the quality of third-party products is as good as anything that you can find out there. Really, really, people are putting a lot of energy and a, and a lot of money behind layout and design and editing and all of this stuff. Really, really great, really great stuff. So just look at this, like, you know, great, big, beautiful pictures of art. Here's all, like, all the kind of interesting things about the draconic species, talking about their lineage. Really good stuff here. 
different breath weapon types, breath weapon options. This is cool. Secondary breath weapons, right? A lot of fun, a lot of fun options. Different new takes, yellow dragons, like new new chromatics, right? We, I think purple dragon, orange dragon, I never heard of orange. Orange, brown, yellow, purple, you know, whole new takes, whole new takes on dragons, which are very cool. There's a whole sort of like draconic, so so I talked about, look at this, this is a two-page two spread. It looks, looks much better if you have it spread out across two pages. Big two-page spread, sapphire dragon. So they too have gem, gem dragons. I They don't have like, as far as I have seen, straight stat blocks for these guys, right? Or maybe maybe they do. I can't remember. I was looking through it. Song dragon. Look at that. Imperial dragon, feral dragon, song dragon, right? Oh, one area of overlap that I thought was kind of interesting, where, you know, it's sort of like two groups, the, the, the Draculathid, right? Which is kind of like a mind flayer dragon, brain eater dragon, right? And, and it's like, oh, that was also something that they had in Fizzbands. That's coincidence that the two groups, because I know that the, this book was being developed before Fizzbands had been released. So I know <laughs> sometimes just ideas come. So, you know, that, that's, that's pretty cool. Dragon Designer. This is the whole thing about building a draconic character, right? And how you, how you make a character for a dragon. All the different kind of, you know, sort of different areas to do it. You know, how your constitution score relates to your weapon attacks and stuff like this you know 20th level features all the way from like your wormling category all the way up to your you know to your high power high power groups all kinds of really you know all the all the juicy mechanics that you need to make draconic characters there's also a fair bit about like how to run the campaign running like a one-on-one -on -one campaign uh, here's like a dragon sworn which is like an ally that you get uh whole things about like how how would you run it you know including like a one-on-one -on -one. and i bet you that this works far better i don't know i would assume that it works far better for a one-on-one -on -one campaign than it would for like a full group and because can you imagine everybody running like big ass legendary monsters so you know good good talk about like how what are the kind of player and dm skills that you're gonna need in order to run a draconic a draconic thing solo play you know dragon more capable than adventures here's how to here's how to run it solo really a lot of good useful information about how to do this kind of thing how to build adventures so the, the part that I am always interested in, and this is where, you know, like I, I kind of crack, you know, look at the hordes. Wow, 20 million gold. Is that right? A wealthy 10th level great worm. This is when you get something interesting, right? So you have your like first to 20th level dragons, like from, from wormling up to an ancient dragon, right? And then you have the great worms. And in this book in particular, both on the player side and on the DM side, uh, they've taken the idea that there are multiple levels of great worms, that great worms have variants in them too, which is really pretty neat. And, 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 you know, <laughs> I don't know, I'm, I'm saving the punchline. Lots of stuff about gemstones. Just really, all, all this stuff is full of it. Layers and, and, you know, layers, layer actions. Look at that. Nice. I love these lists of like different kind of you know, layer location, big layer location list. Again, a difference between this is like, this one doesn't say like, here's a bunch of maps. So uh, Fizzbands actually had a bunch of maps for dragon layers. I found those particularly useful too. So again, nice to see that there is a, a, a difference between these two and it doesn't feel like you're getting the same book from two different takes. But I want to jump down to the monster part because that's what I dig. You know, I'm all about the monsters. Is this the monster part? Dragon Society, Dragonflight. Look at that. woo that's a that's a piece of work. So is your platinum dragon and your and your your chromatic god, right? 
so one of the things about 2C Gaming, 2C Gaming has expanded D&D in a couple of ways. They have created a thing called the, the Epic, Epic Level Handbook, I think it's called, which is their ability, the, an ability to take 5e beyond 20th level and build really really powerful characters that go above 20th level you know truly epic characters and when you have truly epic characters you also need truly epic monsters and 2c gaming also has that right they have monsters that go above cr 30 right they that go above the highest level of monsters that you can find because even in 5e 30 30 cr 30 monsters are not going to be and or or cr 20 plus monsters are not going to be great threats to epic tier characters that are built using the epic level handbooks and things like that and dragon so so this whole section has a thing about dragons and particularly great worms and building out great worms and what i what i'm amused by in this is when you look at the great worms for fizz bands, I kind of went, meh. Like, I kind of like their design. Let's just go take a look at one real quick. Go away. And what do we want? What chromatic? Chromatic great worm. Come on. I guess we'll go to fizz bands. Ooh. Chromatic great worm. Right, so the chromatic great worm is a is a template that you could put on top. It, it's sort of like you you reflavor this around the particular color, and I like it because it's you know as as a CR twenty seven stat block goes, it's pretty straightforward. But I look at it and I go, CR twenty seven should be pretty deadly to a twentieth level group, and I just don't think it is. Having run twentieth level games, right? Having run twentieth level stuff, I just didn't feel like it's it's not bad right like 21 plus 13 force damage on a bite attack so that's you know 21 i don't know math right um claw damage is you can grapple and restrain when grabbed and it's a dc 20 to escape so that's quite a bit the tails but the breath weapon i was always like why is the breath weapon less damage than a great than an ancient dragon does right like you'd think it'd be do more i get that it's huge a 300 foot cone is ridiculously big but like you could double this damage right and it probably wouldn't take out take out characters so i look at it and it's like okay and then you get like the chromatic flare flares up with elemental each 60 it takes 22 like 22 damage is zero that might as well be nothing at cr 20 or level 20 right so like they're cool and 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 you can have the chromatic awakening right and and, and the, the idea that like it has 533 hit points but then turns into this mythic version right where it becomes even more powerful so it has a lot of hit points but this is about as big a monster as you get it's, it's the biggest monsters that you get inside of uh, fizz bands. It's stuff like this. I, I think like they, they have a new Tiamat one that's I think like level, the CR30 and stuff like that. But then you look at the monsters that they're creating in here and it's like the opposite, right? Which is you can have a level 21 great worm. This is, this is to, these are kind of like templates that you put on existing dragons or sort of building a dragon. That is an estimated challenge rating of 30 and then epic one, right? Epic one is monsters that are above cr 30 that are designed only to be faced by characters that are using like epic levels level 21 plus using the 2c gaming the, the 2c gaming rules and you can start to see and they say like you know i think there's a disclaimer in here that's like look epic level monsters cannot be faced you will you will die if you try to face it with a vanilla 5e 20th level character and you start to see why 10d12 hit dice is 10d12 per dragon level so like a 30th level dragon is 300d12 right 
which is 150 times 13. So the base hit points are 1950. That's without constitution, right? Nearly 2000 hit points. The breath weapon, ADD 10 damage, right? In a 160 foot cone or a 300 foot line. ADD 10, that's 45 times 11, right? 495 point breath weapon, right? So what, what, I, what cracks me up, a proficiency bonus of plus 13. So what cracks me up about this is like, on the one side we look at it and they got the great worm and you're like, yeah, I don't think that great worm is a challenge. You look at this and you're like, these are gonzo numbers. I was laughing with Ryan. I'm like, at what point do you switch to exponential math to describe this? Because it's like, eh, it's better to do like 10 times four to the, you know, 10 times four to the 30th, you know, four times 10 to the 30th. So this one definitely like the, the the scale goes off the charts. And what I what cracks me up even more about this is then they so they have epic tier, right? Epic, epic, and they have a whole thing for spell casting. A bunch of different like abilities that you pick up that are crazy powerful abilities, right? Some of which I think people will like I love this. Terrifying presence that is so scary you just die, right? Non-deific creatures can no longer be immune to the frightened condition against your frightful presence. It doesn't matter if you're immune to fright. You're not immune to fright from this thing. And if you if you fail your save, where is the... When a non-epic creature fails its first saving throw against your frightful presence by 10 or more and would be frightened out of failure, you can choose to have it instantly die from fright. That That is pretty... That's pretty great, right? Lots of different powers. Some of the powers people would be like, oh, I don't like that. I, I, on the other hand, think like you kind of need it. So an example is like breath weapons that pierce through immunities or resistances, right? Like, you know, again, if you have an ancient, if you think about having an epic level green great worm, I don't care if you had a hero's feast, its breath weapon is going to affect you. Maybe if you have immunity, you instead have resistance. And if you have resistance, you instead have, instead it's a normal hit. And if you are normal, it's vulnerable, right? Like, but it's breath weapon. The idea that breath weapons shouldn't be all or none, right? It's like, no, there's, there's ranks to them. Lots of different powers you can add to it. So then it's like, okay, well, so now you've got your, your, your 2000 hit point, 450 breath weapon monster. But what if that's not enough, right? What if you want more? Then it comes up with mythic mythic versions now the mythic keyword for 2c gaming is different than the mythic term that is used by wizards of the coast for their monsters and in fairness 2c gaming was using their version first because they had the high level the tpk bestiary for 2c gaming was using this idea of mythic which is essentially like another you know another dial to crank to make really powerful monsters. And like I said, this is the focus. This is a focus that 2C Gaming has on a lot of stuff. It's like really creating super powerful, you know, super powerful stuff. And this talks about a lot of the stuff that that a mythic version, it's a template that you can put on top of an existing monster. And, you know, only great worms can have it and gains these other, you know, a 10 additional hit dice multiplied by its epic. So, it even, you know, now we're talking like 3,000 hit points. So you are getting into like crazy, crazy numbers. Annihilating touch. When the destroyer reduces a creature object or structure to zero hit points, the target is utterly obliterated and reduced to dust. Epic creature effect in this manner can attempt a con save versus the DC preventing the effect. So if it kills you, you just are turned to ash, right? Now, what I like about this, so then it's like, well, what's the practicality of this, right? And the practicality isn't great, but that 
sometimes the numbers tell me a story and that's the kind of stuff I enjoy when I read a book like this. So I like to have a book. I like to know that like, hey, I've got this book over here on the shelf. And if I ever feel like things are just getting too much, I know I can go over here and do this. The other thing is like the numbers and stuff are ridiculous, but I know that 2C Gaming has tested this stuff. This is not just numbers made up in a spreadsheet. They've, they've run these things. They've tried them out. They run tournaments at conventions where you can sort of like face these super powerful foes. So they've actually done stuff with it before. I know that they know what they're talking about when they're, when they're working this, you know, when they're working this kind of stuff. So I did, I, I, I said that they didn't have stat blocks for this. They do have stat blocks and they have stat blocks for interesting dragon types that are not, again, this is cool because it's like different kinds of dragons and, and good news is not overlapping with stuff that you would find in, in, in fizz bands, verdant dragons. I think they have bookworm dragons, sigil, sigil dragons, right? These are really good or sigil dragons. I kind of like these guys, right? And I like these guys because, like, they're, again, they, they've, they've gone to this sort of simple, simpler stat block where it's not just packed with stuff, but it has a lot of different features. I like this Sigil, Sigil Dragon does 99 force damage on a save. And that's an ancient one, so it's already doing more than the Great Worm because I know I should do a lot. 48 points of piercing damage, 22 slashing damage, lots of, lots of stuff. Silence, silent breath weapon. You know, really, really cool. All kinds of neat stuff. And then I think in the back, we have some of the truly monstrous dragons. So here's like the travel, you know, I can't pronounce that. Kragus, Kragus the, 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 the Traveler, a gargantuan dragon, CR 30, a thousand hit points, 99 point breath or 99 point bite attack as, a, as an action, right? Lot, look at all the stuff it does like off of its turn, summoning meteors, chilling the void, cosmic lightning, you know, just tearing the world apart just with its thing. Uh, does 200 Nova breath, right? Unleashes a power of one mile, one mile long line, 15 feet wide, 110 fire plus 110 radiant. Now we're talking 220 points of damage on a breath weapon, DC 27 con save. And you're like, well, that's just crazy. But it's CR 30. CR 30 is already off the charts, right? Anything higher than like CR 25 is off the charts. They should be off the charts, right? Like it should be crazy. And I'll tell you, I bet you a well, a high power... Uh, a high power, well-versed group of 20th level characters can probably still deal with this, right? It's not, I bet you they can, they can, they can fight it and, and maybe survive. Like it's hard stuff. Here's another one, the Eclipse. So, you know, big ass, here's CR 29, you know, CR 29 monsters. And then I think they have some, a couple of mythic, a couple of mythic monsters. These are the monsters that are at their, you know, the Scribe of Ruins, CR 25. Epic spells, dragon spells, right? Very, that's, that's some fun stuff. And then character sheets. You know, this is your character sheet that you use to make your dragon, right? Great stuff. So I, I think, you know, I've, I've given a fair bit of time to this book. And I think by, for good reason, it is a, it is a really cool book. If you were looking for a book at, uh, uh, a book of dragons, you want to play dragons, you want super high powerful dragons, you want, you want like, you know, true dragons that are going to shake the world apart, and you want lots of interesting lore, lots of interesting takes on the whole dragon, pick up Dragonflight by 2C Gaming. It is a, it is a really cool, uh, a really cool book. Again, the link for that book is in the show notes below. So this past week, uh, I released a small product for patrons of Sly Flourish that I had been working on for a couple of months on and off. It was sort of like a side project while I was waiting for the companion to get finished. It's something that I've been working on and it's, I, it's, it's probably part of a new, a new line of products that I'm working on under, under overall title called Ozymandias. 
So the first part of Ozymandias is a city called the City of Arches. This is a 12-page source book. It is available to patrons of Sly Flourish. I've been working on it uh, for a couple of uh, uh, a couple of months now, and I wanted to build a city. I, so I want to I want to build like a you know it's kind of a campaign thing, right? A campaign a campaign adventure. But instead of putting out like a great big book that has it all at once, I want to put it out in little pieces. And the way to get it in little pieces is become a patron of Sly Flourish and you will get little pieces of this. And I'm, I'm probably going to take it in different directions. I'm going to try different things, right? It's not just going to be a very typical campaign. It's going to be like, oh, maybe I'll just do a segment on villains or maybe I'll do a campaign, a short campaign arc description similar to the campaign arcs that I've done on Sly Flourish, stuff like that. So it is not a campaign setting. It is just a city. But the, the, the City of Arches is designed to be a city of adventure that fits in well, just kind of like Grendelroot, fits in well into your existing campaign world, but yet is, is unlimited in its scope and scale with where you want to take it. So you can drop this city in lots of different places. Environmentally, I kept it relatively vague, so you can kind of put it. I always think of it on the edge of civilization and desert. That's kind of the way I've been thinking about it. But I don't really, I, 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 was, I, I was hazy about those details in here because I want you to be able to kind of drop it wherever you want. But the idea of it's sort of on the edge of civilization and on the edge of, of wilderness and wasteland is, is sort of, you know, where I, where I wanted to put it. But uh, the other interesting thing about the city of arches is that it is a very old city. It is, is an ancient city. It was actually the throne of a ruler who is now known as sort of the nameless King. And it's because they were cursed to non-existence that something happened to the nameless King who is a lich, right? Something happened that tore the name of this lich out of existence completely, right? To the point where like, if you find a book that has its history and you open it up, the book, the pages start to burn. And one of the things that this, this nameless king had done in this city is used it as a hub to other parts of the world and other worlds using a bunch of archways. And these archways are all different sizes and all different constructs and look like all different things in all different ages. And now they're all relatively unstable. You can't just walk through them and go to other worlds, right? They are, they're dead arches, except every so often creature will come through the arch from the other direction. They'll sort of get lost and show up in the city of arches. And when they show up, they, most of the time they show up with little memory of where they came from or how they got here or, or who even really kind of who they are. It's sort of up to the players and DMs to decide how much they know. But the interesting thing is that means you can have any character race in this city and it makes sense, right? If you wanna have a Loxodon in here, you can have a Loxodon in here. If you want a turtle, you can have a turtle. You can have any character race you want because it's like, well, this is a, a melting pot of different races that have come from either other parts of the world or come from other worlds completely in this one place. But when they arrive, they're welcomed to the city because they say, as long as they're not directly hostile, whatever they used to be doesn't really matter. And now they're part of the city of Arches. Unfortunately, there's no good way back. And some of them obsess with the idea of like, I'm trying to get back, right? But instead it's like they come here and they, and they stay here. They are welcomed with a gift basket. They, there's a group known as the gatekeepers who try to acclimate new arrivals and they're given a gift basket that has some fancy cheeses and some, some crackers and some soaps, scented soaps. And they are, uh, and then welcome to the city. And right, and so like you, you might see like a big scarred minotaur you know, comes through the thing and is, it's kind of confused. And this nice woman comes up and says, welcome to the city of arches. I know that you're confused, but you are, you're in good company. And this huge 
you know, Minotaur is like looking at him as here's your gift basket with the scented soaps. Might I recommend going to the public baths? We have a public baths. You are free. It, trust me, you'll feel better, right? Enjoy some of the crackers and the cheese and the, and the fancy chocolates and, and go, to the, go to the public baths. You have your scented soaps and enjoy a bath and you will feel better. Right. So I, again, I always want it to be like a welcoming place. I always like to, to build a city that you would want to go to. Like you're like, oh, that's cool. I would love to live there. Right. I want to I want to have a I want to have a place like this. But also it needs to be packed full of adventure. And the city expands in three ways. There's three areas of, of like deep adventure. One is it sits on a cliffside and the cliffside is riddled with catacombs old catacombs people that have lived in this city for thousands of years have been burying their dead up in the catacombs there are catacombs sitting on top of catacombs every so often they dig a new catacomb and it opens up an old one that no one had known about so there's all kinds of options for crazy stuff some of the catacombs are good some of the people are bad all, all sorts of stuff that are going on but the catacombs are essentially a limitless network of caverns that you could explore in the in the cliffside the other one is that the city is layered it's sitting on top of other ones there's actually two layers of the city that are both populated now and then there's also other chambers and there's other chambers and other ruins that exist below. You can think of it like the city is stacked high, which means you kind of have a limitless dungeon that goes down. Very Greyhawk style, right? This idea of like you get unlimited dungeons that go on below the surface of, of this. And chambers are always opening up. There's, there's like these large sewer grates that take water. There's a big waterfall that flows into the city. The waterfall flows into the public baths where everybody just goes and hangs out naked and has meetings and talks to each other. And then there's these big pipes that take water out and turn into the sewers and everything else. And those kind of go below the city. In fact, there's old machines that sit below the city that are powered by the water that in some cases keep the city operating, but no one knows how they work. So you have unlimited that way. And then you have the arches and the arches themselves Right now, typically, you can't just walk through and go a place, but there are keys and you can find keys to the arches. And if you find the right key, that key and the right arch can take you to a different place, which means now you can expand multipolanearly, right? So you essentially have, it's, it's, it's a little bit like Sigil, Sigil, the city in Planescape, but not quite. Because in Sigil, like there's people going back and forth and in and out all the time. In this one, you're only occasionally getting people that come in from the outside. It doesn't happen all the time, right? But it does, but there are options so that you can expand it that way if you want. And it could be just like a gate opens and it goes to a dungeon that's far away, not necessarily outside of the world, right? There could be other ruins of this nameless king that he had connected together, right? So, so it's a 12 page book. It has history. It has politics. It has a lot of GM guidance for like how to run this thing. It has notable NPCs. It has notable locations. It's got factions, like different factions that are at play. There's some, a, a little bit of intrigue going on. You have like the, the, the black hand, you know, criminal organizations. Shocker, there are cults. I have cults in here. I have multiple cults, but one is the, the children of Abraxas is one of the names of the cults. They're a group that's trying to draw a demon out of a gate. They're, they're, you know, the Golden Knights. So all kinds of different factions. And then I have both random events that could occur that, you know, if you go to the city, one of these events might be going on. Uh, and also random city encounters. Like what are some encounters that you might run into uh, while you're exploring the city itself? I'm almost embarrassed to show it, but this is my hand-drawn draft map of the city. The good news is thanks to the patrons of Sly Flourish, first of all, the, the patrons of Sly Flourish, thanks to your generosity, I'm commissioning an actual good map of this uh, done by Chloe Ballard, who had done the maps to the Lazy DM. She had done the point crawl maps to the Lazy DM's companion. She took this and she has already started working on a new map that I'm going to put in this as well. So it's going to have a real good professional map. So this is my first push into this new idea of sort of a hub 
of adventure. And my, my hope is to kind of build off of it in lots of different ways. Small adventures. I already, yesterday on my day off, I, I said like, what if I wrote a one hour adventure for first level characters that was built in the city of Arches? So I started work on that. It's called the Obsidian Skull. You deal with cults. But like, you know, I think it would be fun to see how this can expand. And it seems like it can expand in any direction. So I really, really like to take this and kind of build it out into a fun, you know, like a not, you know, something that you can use to build your own campaigns. Like I, I'm, you know, I recognize that like buying a full campaign adventure, you know, has lots of opportunities, but I want to give you tools to help build your own thing. And maybe it's enough that like you could just grab the whole thing and run it. But a lot of people have like taken Grendel Root. I was talking, I got a, a, a note from somebody that they had been running Grendel Root for two years, right? They've been building a big campaign in Ruins of the Grendel for two years. That's what I want to do. So I think that that's, I think that that's really, that that's really, really cool. Uh, Merrick 90 says, would this be level one to six or higher? You're going to see a lot of, so my, my, my thought was to have enough tier one stuff to get you to tier two. So maybe like one adventure per level, roughly, to get you to tier two. And then probably focus a lot on tier two, uh, five, to t five to 10th level, right? But I would, I would like to take it to 20th. I think it'd be fun to have like a whole arc. I don't know what it'd be. I don't know if it's going to have full adventures all the way to 20th. But I'd certainly like to offer enough material and enough inspiration, useful material and useful inspiration to help DMs run adventures all the way to 20th level. So I think it would be really cool. Uh, anyway, it's available to patrons of Sly Flourish. If you are enjoying this show, you want to see stuff like this. It's available to all patrons, $2, $2 entry to get into the, to the patron of Sly Flourish. You get access to this. You also get access to all the other stuff that I've been creating for Patreon over the past couple of years, which is a fair bit of stuff, multiple, like five, four or five adventures. I think it's at least four adventures. Uh, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2. Volume, um, volume 2 is stuff that didn't make it into Lazy DM's Companion. All kinds of stuff. You get a lot You get a lot of stuff. But most of all, you're helping me. So that's the City of Arches. I want to show it off today because I'm very happy with it. And I delivered that on uh, Friday. So if you are a patron, you should check your email. It should be in your email. If you can't find it there, there is a, there is a page linked on the Patreon. It's like the number one page. It has all the products in there. That's the page you want to like keep bookmarked because I always put everything that I put on that one page. Very cool stuff. Coffee Man 23 says, obviously available on Patreon. Will it be pushed to drive through or some other site that sells adventures eventually? Maybe. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. It would not completely surprise me if one day I let it build up and build up and build up and build up and build up. And then I took that material and I got, I commissioned art for it and I did design and I did editing and I did layout and we turn it into like a Kickstarter or do a big book like a Grendel Root size book. But I'm probably not going to take it in its current form and make it available. I think that is only going to be available on Patreon. That's my my current. I don't. I want to ever say never. People were like, "Oh, Mike said he would never do a campaign world." If I did, that would be a mistake, right? Never say never. But I think it would be. It it, it is not out of hand to think that I would put this together into some kind of thing and and turn it into a bigger project. So that would be really cool. Uh, Rangavarg says about the Dragonflight book, does it require two C's previous epic books with their rules? It, it does for the epic tier stuff. It doesn't for most of it. No, most of it. You do not need the other books, but for those like epic dragons that we're looking at the epic mythic great worm dragons, you can make them using Dragonflight, but there's obviously no material to like fight them because that's all in other books. So the answer is not for most of it. No. So yeah, anyway, cool stuff. Let's do some patron questions. Anthony B. Uh, hi, Mike. Our game has shifted from a more centralized war campaign in Wildmount to turning into a sandbox style campaign. 
I don't think that they realize what a war campaign would entail. I have no problem switching it up for them. How do you feel about using the lazy DM method in sandbox style campaigns? Is it still applicable in its eight step method or do you apply another step to make sure that you can keep up with the party's wanderlust? It's a good question. Uh, the answer is yes, you can, uh, you, can, you can use the eight step method for sandbox games. I have used them for sandbox games. And a lot of it is what options are available to the characters and when are they available? And what I have found, like, so I would, I would say that my Numenera game, which we're going to be doing prep for in, in, in about 20 minutes, is a sandbox style game. It, it's going to have a, a plot and a story, but I'm always going to offer multiple options to the characters for where they want to go. And so the, the sandbox, there, there's a couple of different approaches, right? And one is if like you're thinking about tr a true like West Marches style game where you just have an area and you have locations in the area and rumors tied to the locations and the players decide that that is a way to go. I, I tend to find that I like the three option. I like to offer three options, right? Instead of saying like, here's 26 locations you can go to, no one's going to be happy, right? Because no one's going to know exactly what location they want to go to. And all five players are going to have five different places they want to go. And maybe they come to it, but but that's one way to go. And, I'm, and people probably do that. It probably works out. But I, I tend to think like it's easier if you have like three clear locations that the players can go to. If they really want to go somewhere else, you can figure that out. And then offer those up and let them choose. And as I did in my Numenera game, I actually pushed them pretty hard to make that choice at the end of a session so that I knew where they were going. And then I could, then I could get to the lazy DM prep of prepping that one location because it's harder to prep a lot of locations and have enough information about them to to run it now i've i've heard of people who would actually do like the lazy dm prep for each location independently and then just set it aside and then each location would have its own set of secrets its own monsters its own story maybe its own strong start you know you could take like the eight steps and sort of wrap them around each location and then bundle that and set it aside but that's a lot of work and you might end up yeah, I mean, it's not as much work as doing like real full prep. You're not writing a lot of stuff. But, you know, like if you did a half hour per location, you had 10 locations. That's a lot of time, right? That's five hours. That's five hours of time. And what if they only go to three of them? Well, now you've, you've expended a lot of energy. So to me, and I think if you look at like how West March's games work, one of the requirements is that the players tell the GM where they want to go before the game session is going to happen, right? So... In, in a West Marches style game, the players are driving the game sessions. They schedule it. They pick the players. They pick the DM. It's not the DM building everything. Like, and, and in that idea, they, they tell the player, hey, based on this map with all these different locations, we want to go to the, the, the Twisted Obsidian Tower, right? Like, we want to go to the Obsidian Tower. That place sounds cool. We heard there's like a neat, some new magic spells there. We want to go get those new magic spells at the Obsidian Tower. And they would tell the GM ahead of time, hey, we'd like you to run us through an adventure going to the Obsidian Tower. And now the DM GM has time to prep, right? And they can spend their half hour, their hour, however long they need to build the Obsidian Tower. They build it out and then the game session happens. So I think the real key when you're working with uh, players in a sandbox style game is recognizing that they probably need to make their choices about where they're going to go before you prep the session so that you know what to prep. And then you go to the eight steps like normal. So Anthony, I hope I, that was kind of long and rambly. I hope that was, I hope that answered your question. Uh, Sasquatch says, hi, Mike, I love your work and then certainly cranking out resources for the hungry GMs. Keep it up. Thanks for, you know, hey, slowly putting out content. Love you, James. Keep it up. 
Uh, I love the end of campaign Frost Maiden player one year later recaps, but I had a question about its scope. One of your players had killed uh, had killed the Xanathar goldfish. If he had said that he wanted to kill Xanathar, would you have made him roll for it? You said that you don't like to add any mechanics, but there's a point where you would say that role play the scene. What if a player just said, I want to kill gods, right? Well, luckily when I've done the, this is one of those where like there's what ifs and then there's what actually happens, right? So far when I've done my one year later montages, None of the players have gone beyond the scope of what they think their character will be capable of. They know what their characters can do and they know what their characters can't. I haven't had a player who's like tried to break things. I've had them do some crazy stuff, right? I think if, if it, but we'll just hypothetically say, what if they said, I, I kill the Xanathar? I'd probably say like, you try, right? Like you can still push back a little bit and you don't roll dice and you don't, you don't sort of do anything like that. But instead of, and, and, you know, luckily I haven't had a player that I've had to like shut down there one year later. Most of them have had reasonable things that they did that were still really fun and really interesting, but not game breaking. Right. So hunting the gods, sure. Hunting the Xanathar. Sure. Right. Like that kind of stuff can, can still work. But luckily the players that I've, that I've done this with, recognize the scope and scale of what their characters would probably be capable of and haven't tried to do anything else. So if some, but if somebody did, I would probably steer it towards you try rather than you, you can, like if you're hunting the gods, like, you know, describe what it's like as you're trying to hunt the gods, not you didn't kill them. Right. But you're out there hunting for them and you're getting magic items. You might, you might kind of, you know, lead off with like, you know, as you're going through the dungeons looking for God slaying weapons with a, you know, a Kill Bill style list of the gods you're going to hunt. And that's where we end it, right? So who knows if they killed him or not. That's probably how I'd handle it. PhD 20, in your experience, uh, what's one underutilized or overlooked nugget of wisdom from within the eight steps of the lazy DM? For example, I, I couldn't grasp the value of throwing away unrevealed secrets at first. Something, sometimes I still struggle. But as time goes on, I see the value in the approach. So what is an un appreciated nugget that's a good question i probably had an answer I, I think i answered you on patreon and then i forgot what i said separation is important the idea that each of the steps are independent of the others i think is important that your locations and your monsters are separated so that you don't have to build encounters that have a certain set of monsters in a certain location i think that that is something that's harder for people to grasp there's a lot of things like in the, in the eight, you know, so with, this is specifically within the eight steps because there's lots of things that people aren't grasping from other, from other elements. People have certainly got the idea that secrets are, are not associated with particular locations. Lots of people have figured out that, that power, that power tool, that idea that you can drop the secrets in where you want that, that really works. Probably see, you know, scenes being a loose grip. I think people mostly get that too. So I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the separation of the different steps. The idea that each of those is a little bowl of ingredients that you're using at your table to build the story at the table rather than building out a clear, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. I think, I think that's good. I, nothing jumps out. Nothing jumps out. It's like, well, nobody, nobody's understood X you know, of, of the eight steps mostly it seems to be Alex G on a recent weekly show. You mentioned that there were some aspects of fourth edition you liked and think should be preserved in this era. What are some of the mechanics and features of earlier editions you think would benefit us to bring into our games? Blood, the bloodied condition is pretty good. There's actually a description of the bloodied condition in the dungeon master's guide for fifth edition as a description, right? Not as so much as a mechanic, but you can, you can add a mechanic for that. You can have creatures who change up their style when they hit bloodied. 
right? I.e. when they're at half their hit points, right? This is a fourth, in fourth edition, it was an actual mechanic that said they have this many hit points and they're bloodied at half of those hit points. So you, you could have a dragon that gets more dangerous when it reaches half of its hit points. You could have monsters that get an extra attack. An easy one would be a monster gets an extra attack when they, when they get at half their hit points, particularly boss monsters. Other ways to change the environment up based on the triggering of when they've become bloodied. I think that that's a really good, I think that's a really good thing. It's, it's a mechanic-y thing. I'm, I'm not upset that it's not in fifth edition because I think it is a very game mechanic-y kind of thing. There's lots of people that wish there were more game mechanics in 5e. I'm not really one of them. I think that there are nice options to drop in. I don't think we need more mechanics. I think like I really changed in how I think about D&D between fourth and fifth to that focus on the story. And I want my mechanics to drive the story. On the other hand, for bosses and stuff like that, something like the bloodied mechanic, I think is really, is really good. Integration of environmental effects is something else that fourth edition spent a lot of time on that we don't really spend a lot of time in fifth. And again, it works well for boss fights. It can change up a fight and make it interesting to have environmental effects that are, that are affecting the battle. And there's just not a lot of material for that. There's actually a product called Home Field Advantage that I'm probably going to preview in weeks to come. This is on the DMs Guild that talks a lot about layer actions for almost every monster, right? And it's a way of bringing environment in. So check check that. Let's let's find that. I think it's it's a yeah, it's a bestseller, number one bestseller on popular DM Guild titles. Home Field Advantage, twenty dollars, and it's a great big book of how, how big? Two hundred and fifty pages of layer actions for just about every monster in the monster manual and in supplementary materials. So uh, I haven't had a chance to dig into it yet, but it looks really good. And so that that is something that you can drop in for 4E. The other thing that 4E had that 5th does not is really easy to use in counter building advice. And I think I would use the lazy DM benchmark, the, the, the deadly benchmark that I use is about as easy as you can get. And there's a reason why the fourth edition style doesn't work with fifth edition. And that's because of the way the math works in fifth edition. You can't, you can't do the kind of thing you could do in fourth edition because there wasn't like elites and solos and stuff like that. But bloodied and environments are probably two. Victor N. I have a large collection of adventures and compendiums in PDF format, which I like to mine for ideas. The problem is whenever I'm looking for an idea or a cool NPC encounter, a bit of lore, I can't remember where I saw those things. And I can waste a lot of time browsing through all my content in search of inspiration. Do you have any suggestions for earmarking or cataloging ideas for later use? How do you navigate and leverage all the material at your disposal? I have a ton of material at my disposal. I've got, I've got hundreds of PDF, RPG PDFs and I don't have a good way to organize it. I, I just kind of remember roughly what kind of things were in books, but I'm not good at this at all. I don't, the, I don't, I don't have a good answer for you, but I can offer some thoughts. And one thing is like when I find a product I really like, I mark it with a, with a tag. I, I get in, in on, on my Mac, I can tag stuff and I give it an RPG inspiration tag so that I can say, show me all the RPG inspiration ones. And that kind of puts it in a different group. doesn't matter what folder I have it in. I can load this search up and say, show me all the ones that have this tag. That's one way I can sort of find that, but that's just products, right? I think what I would probably do is, is set up a notion notebook or set up a notion page and try to take snapshots of stuff. Use the screenshot feature and create a notebook and put, I, you know, treat it like a scrapbook. There was a book what was it called? Twyla Tharp wrote a book. She kind of wrote a book. She goes through the create uh, Twyla. The, the, so uh, Twyla Tharp is a producer of Broadway shows, I think. And she did a book called The Creative Habit that I read a long time ago. It's a, it's a well-loved book. And one of the things that Twyla Tharp talked about in this book 
is a they, she she would take a banker box whenever she was doing a show. She had a banker box. And she would, which is like a big cardboard box, a big file box, right? And she would put anything in it that inspired her show, tapes and videos and pictures and magazines and any kind of multimedia stuff she would throw in this box and it would help inspire her for that show. It might be an album that she liked that, that caught her attention. It might be photos that she picked up, any uh, physical objects, right? That she would throw in there. I think we can create a, a sort of box like that for our campaign too. I talked one of the early, I think it's one of the earliest Sly Flourish articles. If we go all the way back, like the earliest art, look at, look at early articles. And I think one of the earliest articles I wrote. Yeah, look at this. Back, back in 2009, I wrote an article called Build a Twilotharp Campaign Style Box. Right? I'll link to this. I'll link to this in the show notes. I'll stick this, this article here. I haven't updated it in a long time. Uh, I don't know why. I guess it's a short box, but the idea here, it's a pretty short article, right? And the idea is like set up a place, whatever it is, whether it's a notion notebook, whether it's an obsidian page, whether it's a one note pay, one note is really good for this. Like find a way to make a scrapbook, right? And you can set a four year campaign. What's your campaign's scrapbook, right? And you can grab screenshots of all of the product. Anytime you see something like that's really cool. And maybe it's a side to your campaign, drop a screenshot of it in your scrapbook so that you have that. And then, and then you could go back. Of course, I'm saying all this, I don't do it, right? I haven't really done it, but that's probably what I would do. Uh, Victor, thank you for the question. BJH says, you've spoken about how certain kinds of scenes and stories aren't well suited for the tools of 5e. Chases and mysteries come to mind from videos in the past. What are your thoughts on the best way to introduce mazes or labyrinths? A top-down map could trivialize the challenge, but narrating each intersection and dead end sounds miserable. What level of focus has proven to be the most memorable in your games? I think mazes and labyrinths probably are up there with chases and chases and mysteries in that they pro I don't think they work particularly well. I think people have tried them. I think if you look at published adventures, not a lot of them in there, right? And it's because they are so hard to do. One way to do them is to treat them abstract, treat them in the abstract. Instead of talking about each intersection, instead you can have them make skill checks to try to stay on track. And if they fail the track, you could treat it, you know, you could build a clock, right? You could build a, a blades in the dark style clock that is like, you know, maybe you have two. One is the make your way through the maze and one is the become hopelessly lost, right? And each time they're making checks, maybe they're making group checks and the clock is going like, how are they navigating through the maze effectively? And then the other clock is like, are they getting completely lost, right? And then you can have certain events that occur, fun events that occur, depending on the positions of the clock. Like after they've had three successes, maybe they run into a good thing or whatever, right? You drop encounters in there of what, of what might be going on. I would probably treat it in the abstract. I would probably not bother with a map. And I would instead set up a series of, of checks for them to do to make their way through, through a maze or labyrinth. And then know like what kind of encounters, if I'm thinking about the maze, like why is it interesting, right? Are, are they going to find good things? Are they going to find bad things? You know, are they going to run into things? Like, are they being chased by something? If like, let's say you want to have, you know, let's say you have relatively low level characters being chased by a minotaur, right? And the minotaur is hunting them. Well, that would be a clock where like, you know, they have to stay ahead of the minotaur to get to the center of the maze before the Minotaur reaches them, right? 
that could be kind of a fun way to do it. And that's one where you could sort of have like dials, right? Like the, the you know, Minotaur, you know, every failure, the Minotaur is getting closer, every success, they're getting closer to the beginning, stuff like that. So I think that that is a way, uh, I think that, that that is a way that I would handle it. I don't think I would handle it with a map. And there could be a map that's interesting. And, I, and there are some adventures that have mazes in them. I saw, I think it was, I think in Tyranny of Dragons, in Horde, in, in, is it, in Rise of Tiamat, I think, has a maze, a hedge maze around a dragon tower, something like that. And I, I remember running it. I remember skipping it once and I remember running it and I don't remember how it went. Joseph C., I tried to have a mix up of downbeats within a session, mix of mix of up and downbeats in a session. Do you plan for them long-term in the campaign? Do you have any tips in planning and prepping upswings? I don't plan them out. So so beats are not the kind of thing. So what what is a beat? The idea is that if you want to keep the pacing of your, one way to keep the pacing of your game interesting is to oscillate between upward and downward beats. Good things happen and then bad things happen and then good things happen and then bad things happen. You don't want to have a whole string of bad things happen, one after the other, hard battle after hard battle after hard battle, attrition after attrition after attrition, because it begins to feel hopeless and it becomes kind of depressing and players will break free and they'll, st they'll, 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 they'll break out of the story and think, why am I, why is Mike punishing me with all of these bad things? Like this isn't balanced, right? So you can kind of tell when you've had too many downward beats, when the players start to look at like the mechanics and start questioning challenge ratings and stuff like that, right? That's too many downbeats, uh, too many upbeats and things get boring. Right. And it's like, it's too easy. You're just walking through and people will begin to get bored, right? They'll get bored. There's no risk. They're not excited. So what you want to do is you want to mix your upbeats and downbeats. You want to have good things and bad things and good things and bad things. An easy way to think about this, if you were just doing it with combat would be easy battle, hard battle, easy battle, hard battle. You don't want to have it perfectly symmetrical though. It's okay to have a couple of one and then one or two or three of the others and stuff like that. You want to, you want to, you, you know, you want to generally oscillate, but this is a loose grip idea. This is not a firm, here's, you have to do it a certain way. This is a general purpose idea. All of this comes from the book, Hamlet's Hit Points. This is where I understood it. From Hamlet's Hit Points by Robin Laws. A really, really good book that talks about different beats for, for stories. So... A, to me, a key consideration of upbeats and downbeats is that they you don't know when you're going to need them. You don't know until you're running the game whether or not you're having a series of upbeats or series of downbeats or whether you want to try to oscillate. You can't really plan and prep them too much. You can prepare to improvise, though. And, and a way to prepare to improvise is sometimes when you look at your situation, you say, I'm not going to have any trouble with upbeats. If they're going through a city they're generally not going to have trouble with upbeats because it's like, it's an upbeat place, right? They're going to meet NPCs that are interesting. They're going to be able to buy stuff. That's cool. They're going to be able to go to shops, right? It, like it's a, it's a relaxed area. So you don't need to have a lot of upbeats prepped for a city. I mean, by generally, and you can, right? In a dungeon, you don't really need to have a lot of downbeats because you got monsters, you've got traps, you've got nasty things that are coming down there. So when you look at the kind of session you're going to run, you say, well, what are the, you, you might say to yourself, generally, do I have an idea of like the good things and the bad things that are going to happen, right? And if you can't, if you, if you think you're going to have trouble with it, you can, one trick that I do when you talk about prepping these up and down swings is write down a list of 10 things. What are 10 good things that can happen in, in this dungeon that you're in? What are 10 bad things that can happen in the city? What are, you know, 10, what are 10 complications and what are 10 boons, right? And it's a really good exercise. This writing down 10 things is one of my favorite sort of mental exercises, right? For whatever it is. And 
I think it's a really good way. And you, you, know, you can drop it in your prep wherever you do it. You can do it in the location section, right? Of If they're in a big dungeon, what are 10 good things I might run into? And it might be like a friendly ghost. It might be a uh, crumbling wall that leads to a healing fountain. It might be treasure, right? You, you come up with a lot of, you can come up with a lot of interesting ways uh, to come up with upward beats and downward beats. So uh, my, argu- my, my argument, my, my recommendation is make lists, make, make lists of upward and downward beats based on their current situation. And, and my answer is you, you really can't plan upward and downward beats. You can't even plan them for the session you're about to run, much less sessions in the future. So I would only worry about the session you're about to run. And then I would say, just for the sake of prepping, what are some what are some upward beats and downward beats? You know, make make some lists. Sinan T says, how do you balance ending a session on a cliffhanger, which means you are starting the next session, continuing from where you left off in a scene, starting the encounter from the previous session, with prepping for scenes the players are likely to experience in that next session? It seems like it's helpful when I can ask the players where where might you go the next time we play, and then I can prep accordingly. We were just talking about that. With a cliffhanger, it might feel like you're winging it with the followers with with following the player's route while I'm running the session. So I think I understand the problem the problem is that like if you have a big boss fight let's say you've been crawling through a dungeon you get to the big boss at the end of the dungeon and you say and we're going to end the session right here and all the players go oh right and that's a good way i think that's a fine thing to do because there's arguments against it which like what if the same players aren't there next time and all that and i get all that but but generally the nice thing is you know where it's going to start you've already probably prepped that battle so you've, you've saved a little bit on your prep time you've ended on a high note you've ended on some energy which means they're excited to come back next time you know, there's a lot of advantages to ending before a big battle. But then when they finish that big battle, let's say that was the end of an arc of your story. Well, you don't know what the next angle of the arc. Let's say you're doing, you know, a very, let's, let's go with a very traditional model of the, the, the characters have three options about where they go. They pick one of those options. They go to that place. They fight through it. They fight a big boss. Then they go back to town. They get three new options about three new places to go. Well, if you don't know what of those three new places they're going to go, now you've just you're in you're you're partway into a session. Maybe you're an hour, an hour and a half into a session, and now they go back to town, and now they say, "Oh yeah, for our next job, we want to go to that other ruin, that old ruin. We we want to get the next piece of this, but we want to go to that one." And you're like, "Oh, I totally didn't know they were going to that ruin." So you got that problem that we were talking about earlier of like, how do you prep if there's three different locations, right? So there's probably two ways to deal with this. One is big battles, like big boss battles, take a lot of time anyway. So depending on how long your session is, you might not have that much of a session left which might help because it means you can sort of stall, right? You don't want to make a boring session. You want to have things, but it means like travel, travel might, you know, they might have some time in town. They might have some time traveling. And then when they get to the place, that's where you end the session is on their way in. And now you can prep the session. That's, you know, you can prep what's on the way in. So that's one way is sort of this, you know, you can do it sort of like downtime, right? Offer up some downtime, let let things relax a little bit. They just had their big fight. So you don't, you know, it's okay for everybody to take a breather, talk about what they want to do in town, give them, give them some options for some things to do in town. And you can prep those, right? You know, they're going back to town. So you can say, okay, well, let me prep what's going on in town. Maybe you have a couple events in town, right? Maybe you have some interesting things that are happening there that you can run and that'll take some time and and and, and go on. And then somewhere during that session is when they decide where they're going to next. And you make it pretty clear, like you're not going to get there today, but you'll, next session, you'll be able to get to wherever you're going. The other way is to ask them ahead of time to recognize that like, they, they know that they're going to be in this fight, but they're probably going to succeed. If they already know that there are new options available after this, you can offer those options even after the cliffhanger, right? If you, if you have some extra time, let's say you end 15 minutes before the end of the session, you say, we're going to end the battle before the big battle. By the way, assuming you don't, you're not all killed, 
there are three options for you to go after this. And that includes X, Y, and Z. Which of those do you think you'll go to? And then the players say, oh, we'll, you know, on the assumption we're not all killed, we'll probably go to B. And they say, okay, excellent. And then you can still run downtime and stuff like that. You can still run all that sort of stuff. But now you also know. So I think, you know, one of my general philosophies is that for the, for the ease and the fun of the game, don't worry about breaking character and talking to your players about what's going on outside of the game, right? I, there's a lot of times I see things where they're kind of going off the rails or they're kind of not working right. I, get, I see a lot of questions and I see a lot of like, like, you know, post problems that people post about where they talk about difficulties that are happening in the game where if they just broke character and said, let's all, let's all talk about this out of character for a minute here. All right, let's pause for a minute and let's talk about this and let's talk about what we want to do. And, and, and everybody kind of still comes to agreement as players. And then you go, okay, now we're back in the game again. And this is one of those where like, it doesn't make sense that they would choose their next path when they're right about to fight a big boss, but the players can, and you can say like, look, just so I can have, just so I can be prepared for the next session of these three locations, which one do you think you guys want to go to? And then they tell you, and then you prep that. So don't worry about breaking character to ask questions like that, to make the game better and smoother, right? It's not, you don't have to stay in character the whole time. Thank you, Sinan. I hope that answered your questions. My friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today for the Lazy D&D Talk Show. It is always a great pleasure to do this show. I love it very much. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, picking up any of my books, or subscribing to my videos on YouTube. We will be back next week. We'll talk more things D&D. Thank you very much. Have a great day, and get out there and play some D&D.